like I had said when I first opened up, we are starting an Easter series. Uh, this will be a five-week series leading us into Easter Sunday. And what I want to do is I want to tell you a story over the next five weeks. And it's a story that many of you have heard before, but it's a story that you and I have been invited into. It's a, it's a love story, have you? Um, and roughly two weeks ago as a church, we started our Lent season. Uh, if you remember March 5th, we had uh, Ash Wednesday service. And so as a church, we took time to gather and focus our hearts on this story and ask ourselves, how do we really enter into this story? And historically, throughout the centuries, during this Lent season, the church has fasted from something for 40 days uh, prior to Easter. Um, and they call it Lent. I don't know why they call it Lent, but it's called Lent. And so during Lent, the challenge for you and I was to, to pay more attention to the story. Maybe it's read more scripture or, or uh, add a service to your life or, or whatever it was. And some people, uh, you know, during Lent, they try to break bad habits, right? And, or other people try to give up a meal maybe once a day. But there are all kinds of ways to go about it. And, and nobody really wants to be legalistic about it. The challenge is that for most of us, uh, we don't do it, right? And so Easter comes and goes like any other day of the year, just another calendar day. But the invitation of Lent is to journey with Christ to the cross, to let this season uh, form us as we anticipate, as we hope, as we're shaped, as we are encountering the living Christ. And if you chose to participate in Lent this year, and depending on your level of fasting for Lent, whether you're staying away from something or you're adding something, but it can be a very uh, a time of vulnerability and weakness on this journey. And so that's where I want to pick up this story, this, this love story, this resurrection story, uh, the start of our journey. But I want to ask, give you a moment to chat at your tables. Uh, here's the question I want you to answer. What is something that you gave up and how long were you able to stay away from it? So maybe it's Lent, maybe it's just something in your life. You, at one point in your life, you decided to give something up. How long were you able to stay away from it? Maybe it was just a, a diet or a, a fast or maybe it was just a, a discipline you wanted to practice. But what was something that you've given up at one point or not? Maybe you've come back to it, but how long were you able to actually stay away from that? Talk about that for a moment and we'll come back together. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. If you need a Bible, you can look under uh, one of the seats around you. There should be one. Matthew chapter 4. So when you think about fasting, fasting does a couple of things. It, it puts us in this grand narrative of Scripture, okay? And we find ourselves entering into a story in a way that we normally don't. Because what we find that when we give something up, it doesn't take long before your body starts to cry out, right? And you recognize that you are really dust, right? That you are frail and weak. And that the story that you were created is actually true. If you give up food by day two or three, it, it gets really tough. If you're trying to break the habit of smoking, by day three, everybody knows, right? Because you're angry and you're chewing gum really fast and you have patches all over your body, right? So it's in that place of the desert, it, it is a really a time of breaking for us. A humble time because we realize that there is so much that we are depending on uh, to keep us going in life. But it's an accurate humility that we face because there's no sense, there's no reason why we should try to fool ourselves, right? And to thinking that we're not frail and to thinking that we don't need anybody because that would be a lie. And so we enter into the story and we need to recognize that this begins our journey, this wilderness, this desert, this fasting moment. 
And so much of the time we, we're talking about the church, we, we begin with the questions like, well, well, how do I do this? You know, what do I need to do? Give me the how-to books. Teach me how to go through a 40-day fast, right? And what are the keys to that? And sadly enough, there are several books about fasting. And it seems like it shouldn't be that big of a book, right? You got chapter one, stop eating. Chapter two, see chapter one. And then there's appendix, right? And that's all there is, you know? But yet there's so much in there for us to, to learn from. And the bottom line is, is it's not an issue of how do we do it or what do we need to get through it. It's, it's ultimately an issue of who do we need. When we find ourselves in those places of weaken, uh, weakness and, and brokenness and, and, and humbleness, in this time of testing we go through, what do we need in those moments? And the answer is Christ. And so we're going to go into Matthew chapter 4, and we're actually following Jesus uh, into his journey. And that's where we find ourselves. And so I want to look at this passage in Matthew 4, and I want to talk about some ways that this story shapes us, shapes our own journey. But first, uh, let me create the context for us. You got Jesus. He's just been baptized by the Father. Uh, heaven opens up this door, right? And this Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And this voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This was an, an identity creating, mission uh, initiating moment for Christ. Where God says, you know, this is my son and he is on a mission, which is to bring salvation to the world, to reconcile all things back to the Father. And immediately from that moment, Jesus is put in, it says he's led by the spirit into the wilderness, to, into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And so the desert or the, the wilderness of our journey is this context of barrenness. It's dry, it's arid, it's unfamiliar, it's, it's wild. Has anyone ever been camping outside by themselves alone, gone camping, just by themselves? It's quiet at night, right? You can, you can hear forever. You, you get away from the, the, from the town, and it's dark out there, and those, you know those moments of silence. If you haven't done something like that, well, let's say you take everyone around you right now, and you just make them go away. And it's this great hour and a half probably for you before you start caving in because you're wishing you had someone to talk to, right? Because it's a, it's a time of vulnerability. You're alone, and, 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 and you're like, I'm scared now. What, what was that noise out there? I don't know if you ever had that moment. But it, it, so Jesus, he goes into the wilderness in there, and he says that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, if you've known anyone who's fasted food for a long time, uh, they would tell you that about day 10, things begin to shut down, right? All these toxins begin to be released, and they become uh, emaciated, right? Their, their eyes are sunk in. They begin to smell bad, and their friends are like, you should really go into the wilderness for real, right? Because you stink, right? And it's those last few days there, and, and there's just no fight in them at all. And that's Jesus. That's where he is at this part of the story. He's emaciated. He, he's in this barren place. He's 100% human. And therefore, he's released toxins. He's, 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 his eyes are probably sunk in. He's super tired. He has no fight in him at this point. And that is where Satan enters the story. Now, Satan is in this story, he's tempting Jesus with these legitimate temptations. And so we have to create a context for these. See, God led Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And the temptations that Satan offer seem to infer that Satan has some sort of authority, some sort of power to offer what he offers to Jesus. And so scripture teaches us that Satan is the God of this age, that he's the ruler of the world. That he ripped the authority from Adam 
who is supposed to have dominion over creation. He rips that from Adam, and now he rules it, and he perverts it and twists it. And we also know that he, is, he is, has this limited reign, though. He has limited power, but he has actual reign and actual power. And so the temptations he tempts Jesus with are legitimate. He offers that he makes our legitimate offers. This is not a suitcase full of IOUs. There's actually uh, money in there. Because for a limited time, God has deemed that, that God uh, has set Satan with this reign and authority on earth. And even though he's under the sovereign authority of God, there's this uh, power and authority that he has. But his temptation is legitimate in this moment. And so some of you might be struggling with this story already, right? We got this baptism of Jesus, and there's this dove, and now we have this devil in the, the desert. And, and granted, if you're purely looking at this as a, as a rational, modernistic enlightenment moment, you're going to have issues that you struggle with, right? But our faith journey, this is our story. And so God gives us the story of this new humanity, and we believe as a community of faith that God is a great communicator, and he communicates through creation, and he communicates through his word, and ultimately he communicated through Christ. And the story is, is that man rebelled against God after succumbing to the temptations of, of Satan. And Satan has a limited amount of authority, but he will ultimately conquered, be conquered by Christ through the cross and resurrection. In the age to come, he will be destroyed forever. That's our story. And you may go, well, I'm not sure I, I buy that story, man. I, 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 but listen, even if you subscribe to atheistic evolution, you too have a story that you subscribe to. And you can take it all the way back into mindless matter, this big ball somewhere beyond the universe because the universe wasn't there. That's, a, that's still a faith story. And so when we talk about origins and meanings and purpose, we're all subscribing to something. And the biblical story says that there is a real Satan alive in the world today. And this is the point where Jesus is being tempted by him. So Matthew chapter 4, that's the context when we pick up this story. Starting in verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After four, uh, fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him into a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. I want us to look at some ways in which this story from Matthew chapter 4 shapes our journey. 
The first is I think the primary reason that the story is even in here, why Matthew included this story, was to show us that this was a messianic story. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the messianic dream that the Old Testament always talked about. And where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. And so all the passages that Jesus quotes here are coming from the early chapters of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and uh, and 8. And as Israel went into the wilderness, and she was was led, uh, she was to be the people of God in that moment. The blessings to the nations. She repeatedly failed. She repeatedly sinned against God. So if you can, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. You get a picture of what the journey is supposed to produce in us and what it produced in Israel. Chapter 8 of Deuteronomy. Verse 1. Page 255 in my Bible. It says, verse 1, be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter into and possess the land that your Lord promised an oath to your forefathers. The point of the journey was that it was supposed to end in the promised land, supposed to end with resurrection. Verse 2, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert for these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known to to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so Jesus is quoting this context, right? And as Israel goes into the wilderness and they've been rescued from 400 years of slavery, their first complaint is that the food was terrible, right? You know, and they wish they could go back into slavery. They missed the the meat and the vegetables. And in that place on your journey and my journey, that's where we fail, when we're all invited to go on this journey, and the point is, is that it humbles us and it, it tests our hearts. In that pain, your heart begins to be purified. It's almost this melting process going on. And all this other stuff boils to the top, right? And so when Israel is in this humble state, she sins against God and says, you know what, I don't, I don't care about being sustained by your word I care about being sustained by meat and potatoes, right? And I wish I was back in slavery. And so Israel fails to test. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene in Matthew 4, he's invited to fix the greatest pain he has going on, right? If you are the son of God, turn these rocks into bread. Jesus says, no, that's not what sustains me. What sustains me is the word of God. This intimate relationship I have where he speaks to me. And what he communicates to me is what ultimately sustains my life. And so that was the first temptation to show Jesus was the Messiah. Well, the second one was do not put the Lord to the test. At the core of any test of God, it's really the question that we ask is, do you really care about me, God? Like, I'll follow you, but, but I don't know that you're, you're, you're going to show up in the end. And so Israel always demanded a sign that's like, if God does this or if God does that, and there was this bartering going on. So Satan says, look, if you're the son of God, and it was a question of his identity. He said, if you're the son of God, 
if you really think that God loves you, that you're his son, then throw yourself off the temple because obviously a father would catch his son, wouldn't he? Test it. Test and see if God's word is true. Test his character, Jesus. Test to see if his love for you is real. And Israel did this over and over again. And you and I do this over and over again. Hey, God, I did this for you and you haven't shown up yet. And sometimes along our journey, God steps back. And our immediate response and our immediate emotions are, where are you, God? I don't know where you're at. And those are the times where what is really in your heart begins to show up. Do you trust that he cares for you? He said that he'll never leave you, never forsake you. Do you believe that? Do you believe he loves you and it's enough to die for you? In the midst of that moment, you, you want to test him, right? So when Jesus is at the most needy place, Satan comes and says, man, I don't know if, I don't know if God really loves you, man. Uh, you should test his love. Jesus says, no. Well, the last temptation was ultimately a test of, of worship, right? Jesus is asked, will you serve another God? Will you worship another God? And as you follow Israel's story, this is what happens all the time, right? They can continually give their hearts away to other gods. And so as Moses comes down from the mountain, you remember Charlton Heston, he comes down with the Ten Commandments, and, and there they are, they're, they're dancing around the golden calf, right? And he asks Aaron, he says, and he put Aaron in charge. So we ask Aaron, you know, what's going on, man? And Aaron says, well, I'm not sure, boss. You know, I, 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 we, we put a bunch of jewelry in the fire, and then this cow came out. And, and, I, and I may have told him that this is the God that saved us from Egypt, you know, right? And, and so this takes place all throughout the Old Testament. And so God says, you are my covenant people. Don't worship other gods. And they do it anyways. And so he brings in these prophets to tell them that they're worshiping other gods. Or sometimes he uses discipline and punishment and to show them that, hey guys, you're worshiping other gods. And ultimately it's going to lead you to death. And this is a repeated problem for you and I too. Because on the journey, we live in this culture that says, we can take care of every problem and every need you have. And we can gratify those needs right now. And some of us say, well... I think my life would be satisfied if I had a better sex life, and so I'm going to commit adultery. Some say my, my life would be satisfied if I had more money, and so you sacrifice your family for work. Some of us think our life would be satisfied if we had no responsibility and we become lazy. We're all looking for something to satisfy us and ultimately start to worship those things, and we commit idolatry. And Jesus, in that moment, is tempted to go, and this is the greatest temptation. Forget about having to go to the, the cross, Jesus. You don't have to go through any of that. You could be the king of these kingdoms right now. You can get to the end of the story like that. Satan says, all you have to do is commit idolatry. All you have to do is, is worship me. And at this point in the story, eternity is at stake. Satan is trying to usurp more than just an earthly kingdom in this moment, but an eternal kingdom. And Jesus answers, worship God alone. And so he comes out of all three of these temptations, and he is now qualified to be Israel's Messiah. 
and ultimately the fulfillment of an Old Testament history. But if we look back at the story, we, we can find deeper meaning, I believe. See, the story shows us what Jesus' spirituality looks like in a world that is overrun by the devil. And Jesus' spirituality is cross-shaped spirituality. We stand back and we look at the story through the lens of our culture. We recognize that if Jesus would have succumbed to temptation, he would have been a much more effective Messiah, right? He would have done his job better. Satan never shows up and questions Jesus' mission. Check that out. He doesn't say, you don't want to save the world, right? You don't, you don't want to do that. All he talks about is how. That there's a better way to do this, Jesus. And that was tempting. So the first was, is if you turn this rock into bread, Jesus could have done a lot of good by turning stones to bread, right? He could have fulfilled his own needs and ultimately put an end to world hunger, which none of us would say that was a bad thing, right? We would have a great commodity on his hands, right? There's a famine somewhere in the world, but there's a lot of rocks there. So, hey, let's get Jesus there and he'll fix it, right? He'll fix the famine. As long as there's rocks and there's, no, and there's never a shortage of rocks. But he doesn't, he doesn't. He doesn't say I could somehow perform this and be more effective. Because his spiritual, uh, spirituality was rooted in something totally different. It's not to fix the problems of the world at a, at a temporary level, right? Because as soon as he changes the rocks into bread and the person eats the bread, four or five hours later, what? They want another piece of bread. The second temptation is this idea that he would have been much more of an effective Messiah if he would perform these crazy stunts, right? It blows my mind sometimes to think about when God decided that he would come into the world and he, that he would enter into our story, that he would, uh, he's standing outside of history and he could show up at any point in history. But he, cho- he chose to show up in this three mile an hour world, right? Where he would spend his whole life living in this 100 mile radius, but if you and I were in charge, right, he'd, I would say he probably should show up right now, right? He could satellite feed the message on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Everyone would get it, to everyone in the world. We could get it on primetime television, on every network. There's an effectiveness to the way that I think, and it's strategic, right? But Jesus doesn't do it that way. Instead, he's going to go to this three-mile-an-hour world and say, Hey, I'm going to get it done this way, and I'm going to use these 12 guys, and these 12 guys are going to tell a bunch of other people, and we'll we'll do that for 2,000 years. Well, that's not very effective, Jesus, right? We need to streamline this. But he refuses to jump through my hoops and do this dog and pony show, right? He won't let his deity be turned into propaganda and marketing. He just won't let it happen. But when you go through the scriptures, you see he's performing miracles all the time. What's surprising is that he didn't perform more of them, right? He should be fixing everybody. That's the greatest miracle. All you have to say is, is world, you're fixed, right? That, that's all he would have to do, and then we're done. Why didn't we get that? That's, that would have been a great story to read, right? But every time you see him doing a miracle, one of the key emotions that shows up in a lot of these stories is, is he was filled with compassion. He was overwhelmed with compassion. That's personal. That's relational. It was always part of the process with Christ. And the challenge to us today is that Jesus' spirituality is is very different than a lot of Western Christianity. 
Where one minute we can have this and then five minutes we get this and we find ourselves in a position where the next book promises that you can be victorious in all your sins and you can do it instantly, right? And that's the way of the devil. I can get your life on track. I can straighten you out. I, you can be perfect and you don't need God to do it. It's effective, it's efficient. You just don't get to know God. You don't get to be a son or daughter to him. You, you don't get to have your heart formed you don't get journey or process or relationship. You don't get intimacy or, and that's not personal. All these things, God, he cares about you, but you just, you get, you get the end product now. And many of you have bought enough of those books to know that's a joke, right? Because there, there's nothing good that's instant any, anywhere, right? Like if someone says to you, hey, I got this brand new jar of instant coffee, man. Do you get excited about that? Anybody, right? You know, do you want another cup, man? It's only going to take me an instant, right? And you're like, no, I, I didn't want the first cup, man. That's all right. Confession, I tried slim fast, right? It doesn't work. I prefer slim slow, right? And so uh, I don't want anything instant when it comes to food, right? But if I could in an instant make you perfect, if I could sanctify you instantly, get it all done right now, all you have to do is let go of God the way to Jesus is cross-shaped. It's journey. It's slower. The last one is if he would have given into temptation, he would have he'd been a very just ruler of the world, right? If you think about it, Jesus ruling over the entire world, that's what Satan offered him. There would be no more war, no oppression, no genocide. He would have made the empires of the world work really well together. And we look at that and we go, a good idea. Why, why, why could he not do that? That's what the world needs. The world needs a God-like ruler who can rule justly. The only thing he'd have to do is worship the devil to do it. But the world would be a better place, right? And you get to bypass the cross, Jesus. In all of these pictures, we come to understand that Jesus' spirituality causes us to rethink what we think are the biggest problems in our lives and problems in the world. The goal isn't that you would, and I would, would be fixed. The goal is, is that God would be worshipped alone. And it's going to happen through a blood-stained cross that Christ will bear on your behalf and that we get to know this God and we get to be forgiven. The greatest problem with the world isn't world hunger. It's not the environment and issues that we care about and are actively involved in and we should be involved in. The point isn't to fix them. The point is to let the world know that there is a God who is worthy of their worship. And so he trades in this imperial crown that the world would have given him, that Satan would have given him immediately in exchange for a crown of thorns and it ultimately brings him eternal glory. And so we're invited into this story to see if this story that tells us and calls us, calls us to a different kind of spirituality, a Jesus spirituality that looks very different in a world that is overrun by the devil. This is a formation story, it really a story that teaches us what it looks like when Satan tempts us and how God shapes us in the wilderness. Satan's temptations are always to bypass God, to get immediate gratification that right now you can fix the pain 
heal the hurt, you can get it instantly. And the way that God shapes us is through this wilderness temptation is that we find out that it's not okay to be self-sufficient. Because ultimately we're not. That the life is ultimately sustained by God's word. Some of us, we look at that and we go, well, I don't really like the Bible. I, don't really, I really don't get into the Bible. The problem is, is that ultimately it's a disbelief. You don't believe that God is a great communicator and that he communicated this great story this narrative that we personally are shaped and changed by, this loving scripture, that if we don't give ourselves to it and study it and meditate on it, we'll find ourselves on this journey and we'll be dead. And when Satan comes to tempt us, we got nothing to fall back on, right? And not only that, but people can pervert the scriptures just like Satan did. And we won't even know it. We're like, man, well, that sounds good. That, that sounds like something God would have said, Right? And in the midst of temptation where you can refute the fact that God does care about you, that, that, that you, know, you should meet your own needs, should I, should, I, should I worship God still? When you question those things and there's nothing for you to come back to because you've been out of the word, you're like, I think I read a, a bumper sticker somewhere or maybe it was a sermon I, I heard. Uh, I, got, I got nothing, Satan. You're good, right? But the way we enter into the story, this journey to be tempted by Satan and withstand temptation is that we're sustained by the word. And in this barren place, the word starts to be thirst quenching and appetite satisfying and life shaping. It's also a place that we learn that God can be trusted, that we don't have to test him, that we can stand back in a sense and realize that though I might not be feeling all the emotions I wanna feel or being satisfied the way I think I should, that when I trust in his care and I, and I don't test him, he really does show up. And I have to stand in that barren place without evidence sometimes. And by faith, say, God, I believe that you are here and that you love me and that your heart changes on that journey. I want the band to join me on stage. Another piece is that this is a worship story. The way that God allows us to defeat temptation that comes into our lives is when we start to let our hearts be satisfied with God and not other things. It's that place of worship where we, we recognize that this, is really, this really is satisfying. And for some of you, you've spent your entire life in church and you've heard people talk about being satisfied but I don't see it. I, I don't buy it, Pastor. But it's probably because you're satisfying yourself with all other kinds of things. But let yourself fast. Let yourself be in that barren place and recognize that God's is more satisfying than all those other things that are there. And this journey is about intimacy. It's about the relationship and it's about a process. So when God forms us in this place, when we see it as a process of formation, the cross that we, we bear is not the enemy but our friend. It's the way we are ultimately shaped into the image of Christ. This is a formation story. And it's personal to you. Because you have specific sins that God wants to work on. Specific doubts. 
specific hurts in your life. And you can't get there on some generic five-minute fix-you-up thing. He's interested in the journey with you. And ultimately, this is a salvation story because it shows us that Jesus is qualified to be our Savior, to, to die for our sins. You see, if Jesus would have sinned, if Jesus would have given in to any of those temptations, even in his, his heart thought them, you and I would have been hopeless. He would have had, had to die not for us, but for himself. He wouldn't have been able to die for us. And so the first thing in this salvation story is that this is a faithful son. He's not Israel. He's not Adam. He's not us. He's not like us. He's perfect, and he's faithful to God. You need that Jesus in your life. You need him to be the faithful son of God. And he's also this sinless sacrifice. He was tempted in all these ways, yet was without sin. And in that, being tempted and yet without sin, it means that you and I can have mercy and compassion is put on us that he died for our forgiveness. You needed him to be sinless because God required an unblemished sacrifice. And so this perfect human that was fully God, fully man, took your cross. You took your cross and he was qualified to do it. And ultimately a crucified king. Not a king that cashed in his chips for the here and now, but one who took a crown of thorns saying, hey, I'm not gonna bypass the cross because it's through the cross where I gain resurrection. And the greatest hope of the world is that sin will be remedied. There'll be a remedy for sin that will, the, the fall will be restored and, and death will, will be gone forever. And he did that for us. And so when you go through this story, not only is it a messianic story, it's a story about spirituality, formation, worship, and ultimately salvation. Because if Jesus slips up in the wilderness, we're without hope. And the question of what do I need in the wilderness on this journey becomes a question of who do I need in the wilderness? So as your heart is tested and your body is humbled, who are you following? Who are you trusting? Who are you depending on? Who are you worshiping? Who is sustaining your life? Who is the question? And the answer is that this is a Christ. This is Jesus, the son of the living God, and he is our hope. And the journey to the cross begins here in the desert, in the wilderness. And it's there where uh, this is so, it's so small to what he, what he gave up, right? But it's this beautiful invitation from God to be transformed on the journey and to trust in a new way that Jesus Christ is our life as followers of him. And if you're here today, Christ follower or not, this is your story. This is an opportunity to not let this Easter just come and go, but an opportunity to focus on Christ. And that starts today. We don't want to let the opportunity pass us by. Join me in prayer. God, as we go into a, a time of worship, we want to offer you our hearts. God, you've invited us into the story. You want to form us. You've given us so much. 
through this cross, through the sacrifice of your son. And ultimately, salvation is here by believing in you, believing that we need a savior, believing that we're not self-sufficient, that we, can't, that we can do it on our own, but we needed you. We needed you to, to, to not fail in the wilderness, to remain sinless, to not give in to these temptations, but to selflessly give your life for us on that cross. And we thank you for that today. And we believe today that through your death and resurrection that we have new life. And so we want to give you our hearts today. I'm going to have the band play this first song and I'm going to let you go ahead and just kind of sit there and listen to the words. If you want to get alone at the altar, I'm going to open those up for you. If you want to get at your seat alone and pray and kneel in front of your chair, that's fine too. But I ask that you not distract those around you. If you want to close your eyes and kind of get alone with God, this is the moment for that. But I'm going to come back up and pray. We're going to give you a chance to pass the basket so we can collect this morning's offering and as well as our connect cards and our serve cards. This is a time for you to connect and respond to God and then we'll worship some more together.